our faith. Hallelujah. Well, let's move on to our discussion point for today. And it's quite interesting because, you know, I keep promising that we're going to get back to Revelation and I haven't done it. Because really for months now, I felt the Lord giving me different topics to, to, to share with you. But I felt very strongly just during this last week that it's time to get back to the book of Revelation. Now, in practical terms, it wasn't a good idea because I've had a very, very busy week and it's pretty hard work going through the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons for that is that there are so many different opinions about it, so many different interpretations. And um, it's sometimes pretty hard to kind of cut through what all these many, 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 many expert theologians say. So I spent a fair bit of time, not as much as I would have liked, to be perfectly honest, but a fair bit of time going through my previous notes, because we've already done 12 sessions on the book of Revelation. So I was going through everything that we'd done previously, and uh, then I felt I just want to focus now on Revelation chapter 17. And uh, most would probably preach 17 and 18 together. But I don't know that I'll necessarily have time to get through both of those books in one morning. Now what I want to do is just a very brief reminder of where we're at. This is just a, 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 I guess, a diagrammatic overview of the book of Revelation. Now, my own perspective on biblical hermeneutics, which is really about how you read the Bible, generally read it naturally and read it as an historical document, read it as God's perspective on the whole of human history, and don't try and make it too complicated. Because when all said and done, the Bible is written for us. Right? So you ought not need a doctrine in theology to be able to figure out what God is trying to say to us. So I like to keep it relatively simple, but also look at it unless the context clearly indicates otherwise as history. Now, some of it is past history. Some of it is, if you like, future history. Um, some of it is symbolic. In fact, the book of Revelation reads a little bit like a science fiction uh, novel. Why is that? Because John didn't have the concepts and experiences, nor did anybody living at the time that we have now. So, for example, the, the locusts that create such havoc in the earth have sometimes in modern times been interpreted as things like those Apache helicopters that, that bristle with guns and that they're, they're helicopter gunships. I've read articles on that. But you see, back when John was writing, neither he nor his audience, that they could not have possibly conceived of weapons such as we have today. They talk about scorpions and all sorts of things. So the imagery used is, is something that both John and his audience at that time would have understood. But at the same time, it's not hidden from us as well, if you understand what I'm saying. So we have to understand something about the context in which it was written because it was clearly written, if you like, 
to those early Christians who were under a lot of persecution. But it wasn't just written to them. It was written for all Christians throughout all time. All right? So the way, the way we're looking at it is that human history starts way back in Genesis, right? So that's when all things are created. That's where the, the record of God taking what was a chaotic something and bringing order into it through his acts of creation, including the creation of humanity, Adam and Eve. And so the Old Testament age goes all the way from the time of creation right through until the crucifixion. The crucifixion inaugurated the new covenant, a total different age, if you like, which we call the church age, which really goes from Acts right through until the very beginning, the first couple of chapters of Revelation, where we see the letters that are written to the churches. Now, when, when I talked about those letters, I mentioned then that they could have been understood by the people at the, at the time, given the circumstances of the church in places like Ephesus and Corinth and so on. But they also had an application now. That there are warnings and commendations in those letters and have application today as well. Now we're getting somewhere near the end of the church age. Now, we don't know exactly when the church age will end, but we know we're a lot closer to it than might have been the case a little while ago. Certainly we're a lot closer to it than those who wrote the epistles in the New Testament. At the end of the church age comes this period of tribulation. And, and I, my, my view is that yet it probably will be a literal seven years, broken into two parts. Halfway through is when the covenant with Israel is broken, beasts are revealed, and the latter three and a half years, that's God's dealing with, uh, with Israel, uh, but also that's when the, the three sets of seven judgments uh, um, dealt uh, to the earth. And that will be a dreadful, dreadful time. Will the church be raptured? Well, there are various views, pre-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation, and some mid-tribulation rapture. When we were talking about it, I presented views of people like Robert Williams, who says the church won't be raptured at all, and not until the end of the tribulation period, but we will actually be saved from God's wrath, because the Bible promises that to us. His view is that in the same way that God protected Israel from the pestilence uh, in Egypt, he's going to do it for us in that second half of the tribulation, that period which is called the Great Tribulation. Others, like Norman Giesler, who I rely on fairly heavily, his view is that the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. And that's my own personal view. 
and that's a view which I believe is consistent with the doctrine of eminence, which is a foundational belief of the ACC churches and assemblies of God worldwide. In fact, they call that an absolute non-negotiable. So you can believe, but now you don't have to believe that. I do. I, I can't be a pastor with integrity and not not accept the doctrine of eminence. And then I also, I think, in order to be consistent, need to agree to the implications of eminence and the implications of eminence are that Christ will come back at the beginning of the millennium, not at the end, but also because eminence means there can be no signs of Jesus' return, the church must be raptured at the beginning of that tribulation period. Because when we read about the tribulation, from Revelation 4 through to about 19, it's full of signs, isn't it? It tells us many, many things that are going to happen in the world. So my own view is that the church, and I'm talking about I'm talking about the Bible-believing church, there'll be a lot of the church which is apostate, which has actually gone against the truth of God's word, and I'll have something to say about that shortly. But the true church, the Bible-believing church, will be raptured at the beginning of tribulation, and we will actually be with Jesus, wedding of the Lamb. We will be observers, of course, but we will be with, with Jesus. Then he returns at the beginning of this millennium. This is where human history finishes, at the end of that tribulation. That's when human history finishes. Christ returns. He rules over that millennium, that thousand-year period, and then there's judgment. We'll talk about that period of judgment a little later on. We're judged, not in terms of whether we're going to heaven or hell. That's already been sorted out. We're going to heaven. But we're judged in terms of our works. That's when our works are, as it were, tried in the fire and some will get burned and some are going to survive. And um, I believe that what happens at that point is, in a sense, that's when our rewards are determined, or at least our rewards are handed out. So there'll be different people will have different status in heaven. Um, I'm kind of hoping that everything I'm doing isn't going to be burnt up. I kind of hope that at least every now and then I actually hear and obey. And that, that what I'm hoping, you know, praise God, what I'm doing now is what He wants me to do. Because if it isn't, that, that's going to go up. Poof. That'll just get burnt. Which is why it's really important for us to hear from God. And we'll talk more about that a little later on. That is not today, but into the future. And uh, that's the point also, of course, where all those who have chosen not to become followers, true followers of Jesus Christ, they are assigned to what the Bible calls the lake of fire. There is heaven and there is hell. They are real. Despite what some progressive um, Christian writers might say. And, and, and hell is more than merely the absence of God. Unless you want to interpret the Bible in a peculiar fashion. So where we're at in Revelation uh, 17, we're in here somewhere. 
All right? And it could be at the end of the period of tribulation, but a lot of um, commentators suggest that, in fact, what's happening in Revelation chapter 17 is going on throughout the tribulation period. Just remember, too, that the book of Revelation isn't an exact um, historical document in terms of, of timing. And, and back then, the way of writing wasn't quite the way that it is today. Like today, you have your introduction and then your five points and then a summary and conclusion at the end. That wasn't how they wrote. There are lots of little excursions here, there and everywhere in their writing in order to, to make a point. So that's, that's overall what we're looking at in terms of the book of Revelation. In our last session on Revelation, we looked at some of the events of the tribulation, the, the three sets of seven, if you like. I'm not going to go through these in any detail at all. They're just there as reminders. So there were the, the seven seals, then came the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. Some suggest that they are perfectly sequential. And, and honestly, when you read those seven bowls judgments, that is really, really scary. Because in the end, there are virtually fireballs raining down on the earth, the biggest earthquake the world has ever seen, and people are still shaking their fists in a sense of God, saying, I don't believe you. I don't believe in you. Having nothing to do with you or your Christianity. After all of these things, there will still be people who absolutely refuse to believe. But the earth is going to be in a terrible, terrible mess by then. Chapter 17 is structured quite simply. There are two parts of it, really. The first part is the vision that John has, and the second part, the angel tells him what it all means. Which is pretty neat, really. So what we see first, an, an angel, and this is right at the end of the seven bowls of judgment. One of the angels that was dealing out those bowls of judgment takes John into the wilderness. Now, it's a, it's a, a wilderness of the mind. It's a metaphorical wilderness. It's not an actual wilderness. And then he stares the words that are used in the New Living Translation says he stared in total amazement, in total amazement at a woman. Now, one of the significant things about this woman is that she has something printed on her forehead. Now, that was common for prostitutes in the day. They'd have a headband with a name on the headband. Now, when if you sit back and think about, think about the terrible, terrible name she has. Babylon the Great. 
mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I mean that, I cannot think of a more terrible name by which to be known. Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. She rides a scarlet, seven-headed, ten-horned beast. I, w- I was going to put a, a picture of the, the beast up on the screen. I looked through dozens and there was no, I don't think there was a single picture that really depicted what this beast looks like. So I decided I wouldn't put one up at all. So she writes this scarlet, seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Guess what happens eventually? The beast and his ten horns turn against the woman and totally destroy her. So, let's read it and then we'll pull it apart. So all I want to do is read the whole thing first and then we'll look at it bit by bit. So this is chapter 17 and I'm using the New Living Translation. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. This is John. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her and the people who belong to this world have have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewellery made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Why are you so amazed? The angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't now. And yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns and the seventh is yet to come. But his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seven and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. 
they will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together, they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and King of all kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represents masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast and so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Well, let's have a little look and break it down and see what John is really talking about here. The first thing is that it's probable that the events that are recorded in Revelation 17 occur over the whole of the tribulation period. So they don't necessarily come right at the end, but they are occurring through the whole of the period, most certainly during the second half. There's evidence of that in Revelation 14.8 and in 16.9. So probably what we're seeing is a process that is going on more or less in parallel with those three sets of seven lots of judgment. The fact that this great prostitute rules over many waters, uh, waters in in the Bible are generally a reference to the Gentiles. Land is generally a reference to to Israel, right? So some time ago when we talked about the two beasts, there was a beast that came up out of the water. There was a beast that came from the land. One is representative of the Gentiles. One is representative of Israel the Jews. Ruling over many waters, well that would suggest that the woman, the prostitute is ruling over much of the Gentile world. The prostitute. Well if we have a look through the Old Testament we see that the prostitute is equated with the unfaithfulness of Israel. So God uses the, the sort of marriage as a metaphor right throughout the Bible. It, it, it's a metaphor of the way he wants to relate to in the Old Testament to Israel and the New Testament to the church. So in all likelihood, this woman, this prostitute, she actually represents the church apostate. That is the church which is in fact denied the truth of the word of God. It could be a different religion. It's not 100% clear. But given the imagery that is used consistently throughout the Old Testament in particular, imagery used by the prophets, when Israel veered away from the law of God, when they went their own way, right, God described them as being unfaithful of prostituting themselves. So in all likelihood, this woman 
the mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world, is some kind of apostate religion. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads, etc., etc. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing. That was often actually a sign of royalty, a sign of wealth, a sign of power. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the name written on her head was Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. Now this, this actually gives a key to what chapter 17 is all about. Babylon is always the opposition to God. Babylon is always where evil takes place. The the imagery of the prostitute suggests, and, and probably most interpreters of Revelation agree with this, that she actually represents some kind of worldwide religious movement but one that is veered way, way, way off course in relation to biblical truth. And because a bit later on we talk about a city on seven hills, a lot of people would say, oh, we're talking here about the Catholic Church, their apostate, they haven't really got the truth, look at all the stuff they did up until the Reformation, etc., etc. I'm not convinced that that's the case. Um, Others talk about uh, the ascendancy of the European Union and uh, we'll talk about that kind of thing shortly as well. It could be an ecumenical worldwide churches and there's been, they've been moved to create such a thing for decades. I haven't seen anyone write about this yet but it will happen soon I'm sure. Another possibility is what we call progressive Christianity essentially says don't worry too much about the truth in the word of God we have to take the Bible and put it into the context of today's culture so progressive Christianity for example says same-sex marriage is okay abortion is okay there are even evangelicals in America there's an evangelical pastor who was elected to Congress in the last elections uh, in the United States, who says abortion's okay. He's a pastor. So, and, and I've got Facebook friends, I don't know what you call your, your connections on Facebook friends actually, because a lot of them are not. Um, they're progressive Christians. And they, anytime I, I I have the audacity to put anything on my Facebook page that is ridgy ditch, truth out of the word of God, they, they take me on. Some of them quite aggressively. And so it's this religion, it's this, 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 it's this religious, and this is going to kill the true Christians. Right? For those who, who give their hearts to the Lord during that tribulation period, or if, if I'm wrong and we're not raptured, they want to kill us. And they will. They'll go around killing Bible-believing Christians. That's what happens. You see, the beast here, remember, it was, it is no more, and then it comes up again. That's, that's the beast that comes from the sea 
in Revelation 13. And we've already talked about that. And so here we have this apostate church allied with the worldly authorities. That's what the woman riding on the beast represents. And the fact that she's riding means at least for a time she is in the ascendancy. She's the boss. Because these worldly authorities allow her to be. In verse 7, the angel says to John, Why are you so amazed? I will tell you the mystery of this woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. Now verse verse 8 in reference to the beast is sometimes interpreted to mean Rome as in the seat of the Roman Catholic Church. Because once, actually before Christian times, Rome, was it was an empire. It had enormous influence around the then known world. And it wasn't a good power. They had absolutely no tolerance whatsoever for anything other than towing the line absolutely with Rome. But you see, it is no more. Some commentators are now saying, well, the is to come bit, that's the Catholic Church. Some are saying it's a, it's a, a resurgent Europe. I mean, this has been, I've read this stuff since I was a teenager and it sort of comes and goes. Personally, I, I don't get too carried away with it because I, because I don't think we're going to be here to experience it anyway. And, and, and because of my own position, we, we don't know. I, I just don't see much point in wasting a lot of time and effort and paper trying to figure all that out. But I think fairly clearly this beast we're talking about is the same as the beast in Revelation 13. Uh, verse 9 says, This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. So this is another reason why often the, the, the Catholic Church and the Pope's feature in interpretations of the book of Revelation because Rome is a city on seven hills. But it's interesting, though, that the Greek word which is often rendered hills literally means mountains. Yeah, you know where I'm going, don't you, Christy? <laughs> literally means mountains. And we have actually talked about this if it's mountains, it actually might mean, and I think this is probably more, more, um, more relevant, it might mean the seven mountains of cultural influence. Now, we talked about this probably, might be three years ago now. I actually used that, that diagram. The, the areas, and this is not necessarily exhaustive, but the areas that influence culture are these ones. Arts and entertainment, 
business, education, family, government, media, and religion. Now, the kingdom of God is actually supposed to right, sit over the whole lot of them. The kingdom of God. But what we read here in Revelation 17 is that it's the, the prostitute who for a time sits, sits over that. And actually, nations will cede authority to the prostitute. Now we've seen this kind of thing happen in history before where the political class used religion to establish their own authority and power. And when they do, they cut off religion. Right, this is alluded to when the ten horns and the beast itself rise up and destroy the woman, destroy the prostitute. There will come a time when this worldwide religion or whatever it is has served its purpose, boom, and it will then be destroyed. Now that's God's intention because ultimately all evil is destroyed. So one of the big struggles that is going on right now in our society is who rules over all this stuff? So if we take education, for example, one of the reasons why there are now so many parents wanting to get their children into Christian schools is that state education is being ruled more and more by the prostitute, not by the kingdom. And we see it in politics. You certainly see it in the arts and media. It's, it's everywhere. Now, I'm not saying that this is exactly how it's all going to unfold because we're not, I don't believe we're in the period of tribulation, right? What we're experiencing now, we're seeing a lot of evil in the world. We're seeing a lot more persecution of Christians. In fact, I, I read the Victorian legislation on the gender con, uh, conversion therapy. Now, when you read it, it, it's incredible. Not, not because of them wanting to stamp out Christianity or whatever. That's, that they do anyway. I don't think that is all that important. Really important thing to me is when you read it, you realise that we no longer live in a scientific age. Science doesn't matter anymore. And the, you, should, you should go and read the bill. You can find it online. It's now been passed by both Houses of Parliament. I'm not sure whether it's been signed off by the Governor yet, but once it's signed off, it'll come into effect a year later. But you read it, and in the legislation, they now say there's sex and gender. They're two different things. We're born with a sex. So yes, we're born male or female, but that doesn't matter. It's what we think that matters. So I could be born as a male, but I think that I'm a woman, and that's okay. You should read it. Well, what will happen? The where, where we're going, someone will fall in love with the box on my neighbour's front lawn, and they will be able to marry the box. In fact, there is a psychological disorder that would lead people to want to do that. But now, but see, 
the whole gender dysphoria thing and so on, it's no longer a mental disorder. It's just a choice. And then you read the legislation. So it, that piece of legislation, I'm not saying it's the same everywhere, but that piece of legislation is clearly post-scientific. So we're not living in a science-driven world anymore. It's kind of driven by a new religion, isn't it? And it may be that it's not the Roman Catholic Church we've got to worry about. It's this kind of new religion which really deifies self that's, that's taken over. I don't know. But you know, praise God, we won't be here. We'll just be observers. But it, it's a warning, isn't it? It's a warning that there'll be worldwide forces that are allowed to rule over those seven mountains. So personally, if I had to say what it was, I, I would say that, it, that, that, that the, seven, the seven heads are more a reference uh, to the... Sorry, the seven hills are more a reference to the seven... What we now call the seven mountains of culture. And although that's often regarded as a fairly new idea, I, I believe it actually goes all the way back to Calvin who talked about spheres of influence. And these mountains are, in fact, spheres of influence. But we've done all that before. I won't go into that again. Okay. So this, so verse 9, this calls for a mind of understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. So... I think that diagram is probably as good as any. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. Now, again, you know, there's a whole range of views on the kings. Um, they include, this is, I've written down three that um, commentators fairly commonly um, point to. One is, seven forms of Roman government, seven actual kings, or seven great world powers, those being Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and one to come. And that's where you get all this writing about uh, Europe and the United States and Russia and all those kinds of things. I don't, I don't know that I've got anything terribly insightful um, to say about that, but the one thing that all these things have in common is that there's the political systems or political jurisdictions. So let's move on to verse 11. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He's like the other seven and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. Again, the European Union often features here, although there are more than ten um, individual countries that have signed up there. Um, I suspect that we're yet to see these ten emerge. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. So this... This is where the idea of world government comes from. Together they will go to war against the Lamb 
but the Lamb will defeat him because he is the Lord of Lords and King of all kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. I think that again is evidence of the rapture that when this battle happens, we will actually be with Jesus. We will be with Jesus when this happens. And of course he has victory. Verse 15, Then the angel said to me, The waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. We've really talked about that essentially. That's the influence across the whole of the Gentile world. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. This is the thing about politics, you know. In politics, people are used. It's not how it's meant to be, but people are used. You know, go all the way back to when Israel demanded a king. What did God say? He said, the king will take you to war and he'll make you pay taxes. (laughs) You'll be used for the purposes of the king. And so it is. All the way down through history, the the, um, institution of politics or the institution of government has a tendency to use people. So they hate the woman. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh and burn her remains with fire. I mean, you shouldn't even read this stuff until you're 18, right? (laughs) For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. And by the way, this is an area in which God is sovereign. God didn't delegate to us control of human history. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Now the great city is Babylon. There are, uh, I guess, three main aspects of Babylon. One is religious, one is economic, and one is political. So what we're actually seeing, the overarching story of Revelation 17, that we really, I think, would do well to remember without sort of getting lost in the million and one different interpretations is simply this, that Babylon has always had an influence on human history. It's had an influence in religious affairs. And you see that. Like while Moses was up on the mountain with God, the people created an idol, didn't they? Like right back there. They're not many generations removed, are they, from, from coming out of Egypt? Yes, like, and, and to make an idol. And, and on and on, the whole history of Israel is often going off and doing their own thing, going away from the law of God. In God's terms, prostituting themselves. They get caught up in Babylon. But the, Bab- the Babylonian political system essentially says, I'm in politics for me. I use you to achieve my ends. And the economic system is one where it's profit at all costs. And, and at times in history, that's been worse than others. Through things like slavery and the old ship owners who used to buy um, old, unsafe ships. They'd pile them up to the gunnels and often they'd sink. They'd get their insurance and all the sailors would die. 
that's where the Plimsoll log. Plimsoll was a, a Christian politician. And it, he was the one who eventually managed to get a law passed in England to paint a line around around a, a, a ship to say, when, it, when you load it, it's not allowed to sink in the water below that line. So it'll be safe for the sailors. But prior to that, the ship owners, all they cared about was their pocket. And we see that so, so much in the world today. So what we see in Revelation 17 is destruction of the Babylonian religious system. Destruction of the Babylonian religious system, which rises up and ends up usurping the kingdom of God over the seven mountains, whatever they are, I think more than likely they would be these mountains of cultural influence. But who knows? Whatever, all of these elements of human existence are subject to this global, unbiblical, ungodly, Christian-hating religion. And they'll root out Christians from every one of those areas and will kill them. That's, what, that's what's going on. But ultimately, it will be destroyed. And it'll be destroyed, oh, I can put that up now, but it'll be destroyed at the end of that tribulation period or, or at that juncture of the tribulation period and the millennial rule of Jesus. It'll come. We'll see you next week. In uh, chapter 18, the political and the economic Babylon, they are destroyed. There are already references to the destruction of the economic and political uh, Babylon earlier in, in Revelation. Now, my own, my own feeling is don't get too caught up in what all these people write about the Catholic Church or the European Union or America and so on and so forth. This is the point in Revelation chapter 17. There is a woman, a prostitute, that represents religious apostasy. And there's apostasy among the Jews, among the Catholic Church, the Protestant churches. And there are those, of course, who are apostate because they simply reject Jesus altogether. That, in some global form, is going to rise up and for a time will actually have the political ascendancy. But only until it's no longer useful to the politicians who will then destroy it. In the meantime, a lot of Christians are going to be, as it were, collateral damage. When we're talking Christians, we're talking about those who come to the Lord after the tribulation. So there'll, there'll be a lot of those. There'll be a lot of those. But they won't be raptured. Well, um, it's now five past eleven. I think you've had well and truly enough of me today. Like, apart from a bit of Jeanette, a bit of Tamara, it's all been like the Dr. Rod show, hasn't it? <laughs> not not my, my strongest desire. But anyway, give you something to think about. Read over that, that chapter and ask the Lord to reveal to you what he wants you to understand why that's really important too. Don't just take what I say. 
but you know, wrestle with the scripture until you've got clarity in your own mind what it's all about. Because it's it is important. What we believe about the end of human history has a massive impact on how we behave today. One of the reasons why, in in in, in general, Pentecostal movements are so committed to salvation is that they believe very strongly in the imminent return of Jesus. That is, can return at any moment without any warning at all. So, you know, that makes today urgent to do something about salvation in the rest of the world. If, if you haven't got that, then you can kind of hang off, can't you? Until you start seeing some of these signs. Um, but as I said, I, I think if you if you accept the notion of imminence, and there are at least fourteen scriptures that support the idea of imminence, then following from that would be a pre-tribulation rapture and a pre-millennial return of Jesus. We better leave it there, eh? God bless you, and let me say how much I appreciate the fact that you are here. Um, I'm not.